Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they sent out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we pray now. We ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, some of you know a bit of Johnny Cash. Some of you here I know are fans of Johnny Cash. Um, and some of you even have read his biography or heard his uh, life story. You know um, he comes from an incredible family. Uh, he has a, a very good family life. Um, and in his autobiography, he tells the story of his older brother, Jack, who was only 14 when he died. Uh, Jack, um, he ended up somehow working at this agricultural shop for his high school, and he was running lumber through the sawmill when uh, the saw uh, got close and, and nipped him and got him good, and it was a few days later that he passed. Uh, but it's interesting to know, why was Jack working at the sawmill at age 14? He was doing so to help provide for the family. Uh, and, and just the previous, not long before Jack had actually died, um, he announced to his family, I want to become a preacher. And many people in, in his family and close friends agreed, he should, he should do this. His character was outstanding. Um, he really had a zealousness for the Lord and, and he was encouraged to pursue this. And so Johnny Cash, he looked up to his older brother 
And, and Jack's example still influenced Johnny for his entire life, he said. It, it, this whole experience never left him. It was always there. Um, he says, Jack isn't really gone anyway, any more than anyone is. For one thing, his influence on me has been profound. When we were kids, he tried to turn me from the way of death to the way of life, to steer me toward the light. And since he died, his words and his example have been like signposts for me. The most important question in many of the conundrums and crises of my life has been, which is Jack's way? Which direction would he have taken? I haven't always gone that way, of course, but at least I've known where it was. And so you can see what an important, tremendous impact family can have on us. Uh, family, the family unit is vital. It's important. Our families shape us. They mold us. They form us. Make no doubt about it. Jesus values our personal biological families. Even while he's in his last moments on the cross, Jesus is arranging to care for his family, for his mother. Do you remember the scene where he's speaking to John, the apostle saying, John, your mother and mother, your son, because he so cares for his biological family in his last moments. But here in our passage this morning, Jesus' statements help balance out the level of importance that the family, the biological family, is to have. When Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me, they are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Well, then we begin to see that the kingdom of God really does tramp and trump over our local family. The family, we might say, is a shadow of the family our biological family is, is a dollhouse version, if you will, of our true, deeper, and eternal family that we have here amongst each other, even this morning. And so then, with God as our heavenly father, Jesus, we say, is our supreme brother, and each other as siblings with whom we now live aside. And so that you might see where we are going with our time in this morning through the passage, we have a bit of a sandwich going on here in the Gospel of Mark. He opens up here our time by labeling the 12 who are in, in this inner grouping family. And then Jesus will close by labeling who is in the family of God as a whole. But sandwiched in the middle, it's raised the question, is this Jesus? Should he really be a leader of this family even to begin with? So his character is called into question. His sanity is called into question. The preface here to Jesus Uh, calling Jesus' sanity into question is Jesus calling the 12 into his fold. The text we opened up with at verse 13, if you see down there through 19, shows us clearly just as with Jesus having authority, remember he has authority over so many things, over over the disease, he has authority over over the spiritual realm, he has authority to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, but he also has the authority to determine and to call who will be in his inner twelve. One author correctly states that he is drawing lines to mark out a particular group that will be the messianic foundation for verifying, recording, and telling the following pattern of his life, death and resurrection. This band of 12 will be the specific 12, not just an army of 10,000, but a small band of 12, not a fellowship made up of noble, wise kings. Just 12, not a group of the most learned men. No, this 12 is made up of poor fishermen, sinners, 
tax collectors. These form up the band of 12 apostles. Apostle, in the contemporary context there in Jesus' day, it was often used of a political delegate who's now going to deliver a particular message. Uh, They might be bringing a shipping invoice. They may have been used in a military campaign. To be an apostle was to have a distinct message that you are declaring on the behalf of another who is greater, a leader, a king. More simply put, you are a sent out one. It is noteworthy. Did you know that all four Gospels mention the calling here of the twelve? All four of them bring this in. And that's important because being that all twelve here are with Jesus all the way through his ministry to the very end, it's crucial for the validity of who Jesus is and the facts regarding the cross. These twelve minus one will themselves have full authority to witness to the resurrection. And so we have in here, in this band of 12, did you know that there were three sets of brothers? Um, and we also have apostles here who will later go on to write books of the New Testament. So we think of, of uh, Peter, we think of, of Matthew. Um, and some of these apostles, like Thaddeus and Bartholomew, we almost know nothing about. Further, it's interesting that this 12 is 12, not 9. Not 14, not even seven as you and I might think of a good number to pick, but 12. Why 12? Well, you know, 12 is the number that is always bound up with God's people Uh, from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, we find there is a band of 12 there, isn't there? And it is where we see that uh, just as Jesus is reliving the, the life of Israel, and so there was 12 tribes of Israel, we see, and now we see that Jesus is reenacting, reliving as God's son, and he has a group of 12 who are his people. And further recall from Abraham's seed that they were to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the world. Remember God told Father Abraham, he said, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, we know that Jesus here is fulfilling this picture in the new covenant by calling out a particular 12 who will bless the nations as they are sent out, proclaiming the gospel to them. And likewise, they will obey the voice of God. This is definitely in view. If you scan down to verse 35, what do you see there at at verse 35? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. But even here amongst these 12, we are have already given insight that one of them is a devil. Therefore, even here, we're told about this betrayer, Judas. And even here, there's a sour taste of the end in view. That Judas will have lived and walked with Jesus for three years. He will have seen and experienced, and yet he will not believe or honor Jesus as Lord. In the end, he will be part of what brings about his crucifixion. Uh, many of us say, well, I, I would believe even stronger. If you don't believe, you would believe. If you could just see Jesus walking around here, if you could just see the miracles that Jesus did, if you could just see the resurrection. Mm, yeah, maybe not. Maybe that's not what would necessarily bring about belief. Well, we find here that we too are to be called with Jesus. And yes, it is mediated through the Holy Spirit, but our union to Christ is real and is in essence similar to this initial band of 12, a union in which you're taught, who are comforted, who are sustained, who are healed when needed, and even sent out with the redeeming message of the good news. 
So here we have on this inside, here we get this glimpse of who is on the inner part of Jesus's family, if you will. And now we're going to see who seems to, and appears to be from Mark's vantage point on the outside, who's not in. Look at verses 20 through 21 again. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jesus, his own family here will not make up this inner band of 12, nor um, at this moment, the disciples in general, they seem to echo what was being said about Jesus. They were saying he's out of his mind. He's mad. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. And now, as I was reading through this passage several times, I was looking at the family's response to Jesus. I was looking later at the scribe's response to Jesus, and it came to me, oh, uh, I began to think of C.S. Lewis's uh, liar uh, and lunatic or Lord. I, I began to think of, of these things, and um, I felt like this perfectly encapsulates this passage. I was thinking maybe I should retitle this whole thing as that. And of course, to, to my chagrin, I was not the only one who has thought of this connection before. I started reading in commentaries where others were pointing out C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, and Lord. And okay, well, I'm not the most creative person on the face of the earth. There we go. Um, but to be fair, if, if I were uh, in their shoes and I was experiencing what they were experiencing, well, if, if one, of my, one of my kids came up and said, hey, I'm God, I, I would probably be doing what Jesus' parents are doing at this point. Shh, shh, don't go around saying that. Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, someone's actually going to believe this stuff that you're saying. Knock it off. Why are you calling these 12 and setting them aside to be your posse? Are you crazy? You've already brought on too much attention to our family. Our family is going to be shamed by these scribes who've come up from Jerusalem. They already think that we're odd because of you. Simmer down. You're out of your mind. But at this moment... This accusation of him being a lunatic or called a lunatic, being crazy, is butted up right against another accusation. On one hand, the family's saying he's crazy. On the other hand, we see that he is being called essentially a liar. That he's not on God's side. Jesus says, I am on God's side. And they're saying, no, he's lying. He's actually on Satan's side. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he, and by the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. And so you can see the accusation from the scribe side, one side saying crazy, the other side saying liar. And then we find here that Jesus is now going to use some parables, some stories with the theological implication to prove the point that he is neither out of his mind, nor is he on the side of the devil. So first he gives the kingdom illustration followed by a home robbery. (laughs) The kingdom part is easy. If Satan's kingdom is divided, it's not going to stand. If the kingdom's fighting itself, it'll just dissolve eventually. That parable just stands out on its own. Clearly Jesus is not batting on Satan's team. Satan cannot be divided like this or otherwise Satan would have dissipated a long time ago. Satan here is interestingly pictured in a second parable. The second parable is Satan is pictured as a strong man. A a man who has a home and he has goods that have been stored up in this home. And, And now this home has come under attack from a stranger, a foe. Christ then is the stronger man, stronger than the strong man, who now is going to plunder and drive out Satan's treasure. 
We might think of it in context here that the demons are being driven out of the house. What's the point? The point is simple. Jesus has to be stronger than Satan to overtake him and drive out these demons. Do you know how many times you have been working on something and you used an inferior tool to do the job? You used a weaker tool. Am I the only idiot who's used my fist for a hammer? Uh, Are you with me? Has there been some moments where you've done foolish things like that because you just needed uh, a tool right away and rather than actually get up and go to the toolbox, you used the, the, the Phillips screwdriver, which had a stripped head on it, to work on the screw, which also had its head stripping out. And it wasn't very long before you're grabbing some very strong, uh, you know, vice grips to try and get that screw out. Um, friends, do we believe this text? Do we believe that Jesus is the stronger man, the appropriate strong tool to do the work that's needed in your life? Of driving out demons, of healing you, of forgiving you. Will we resort to viewing Jesus as weaker and go for earthly tools to handle what only Jesus can accomplish and truly do? Jesus warns us of a sin that these scribes who have traveled up from Jerusalem have at least, if not committed, at least they're cozying up to it at this point. So he says in verse 28 and 29, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I'm not sure how many of you have done the historical reading and research and you're aware of the crimes that happened in Nazi Germany following World War or during World War II. Um, it's rather incredible. All the soldiers for the German army were part of this wicked and awful regime. They were guilty of, of murdering over 6 million Jews. And that's just the Jews, not including the other countries' armies that they ob- obliterated and wiped out and uh, peoples that they oppressed and forced into concentration camps. There were many soldiers after the war had ended who found them pl- themselves, you know, under this immunity that was granted by the later government uh, post-World War II. And even sometimes in some cases you have read or heard where the victims actually forgave the soldiers who did the persecution, the concentration camps, this work. But there still remains some Some of those who knew exactly what types of evil and blasphemous activity that they were doing. You see, friends, it's one thing to be part of a system where you're just ushering people off a train car and into a concentration camp. But it's a whole nother thing if you're part of the system who methodically and knowingly plots, builds, and pieces together a whole machine and system which will enslave and murder six million plus people. For that act, there is no forgiveness. There was no forgiveness. Um, several of them during the Nuremberg trials were held um, during these special trials. The leadership of Nazi, those who planned and carried out the Holocaust, they were shown to have methodically, calculatedly, and with strong resolve commit this unforgivable act. And out of the 24 that were tried, it was brought down to 12 who knowingly committed these acts and therefore were hung. I think similarly, the act of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to see the good work of God 
the good work of his spirit and yet in grave rebellion stand opposed and even denounce God's work as the devil's work because you've methodically calculatedly thought this through and stand resolved against the right. So friends, just a couple key insights regarding this idea of blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. This idea, it's not something that you accidentally stumble into. Friends, this is not a pothole on a dark night that you're driving and you accidentally, the dump, didn't even see it coming. This is something that like with the leaders of the Nazi regime, that they are well aware of all the facts. They're well aware of the calculated things that are going on and yet are standing opposed. Further, I imagine there are some here who struggle and wonder, could it be possible that I have committed the act of the unforgivable sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever pondered and go, is it possible? Have I done that? Well, I think the old adage has some truth to it, that if you are sincerely concerned about that, if you, if you in your heart of hearts say, Lord, you know that I, I long for forgiveness. You know that I don't want to stand against you. You know I want to honor you as true king. And yet, you know my past sin, and I'm worried with some of the activities I was involved in. Could that be? You need to hear that even that heart attitude right there reveals you are not calculatedly coldly standing against the work of the Lord. It's highly unlikely then that it's an act you've ever committed. But I do not want to give the impression that it is impossible for us to commit this sin. For Mark has put this here, showing us this for a purpose. It is in fact the religious leaders, those who are standing up in the place, are the ones that are being accused of of cozing up to this unforgivable act. And so I I do want to warn you, and I want to uh, call you to to turn from this view that would ever want to equate the work of God with the work of the devil. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us that they had, in fact, blasphemed the Holy Spirit at this point, but it sure does seem like their actions are putting them right up against to do this. And so I think this warning stands here for them, just as it stands for us. And back up and ask just for a minute, what were they doing here? What works and words of Jesus have been demonstrated before these men? I mean, think about it. A person with leprosy has uh, been touched by Jesus and they were healed. A man tortured by demons had been freed and was healed. Another woman had a flow of blood, as we will read, and she becomes healed. These these scribes, these men, had all seen all these works of Jesus and were calling them not the work of God, but the work of Satan. Let me paint the picture for us this way in our modern era, our modern context. The English philosopher Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, and the book is sadly titled, God is Not Great, subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. I believe this might be an example of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Here, a very intelligent man who has spent his entire life thinking deep about the Bible, thinking deep about religion, thinking deep about the world we live in. He is very intelligent and he looks at the same data. He looks at the same things we look at and he says, it's evil. Hold the phone. Prior to Christianity, prior to Christ's coming, do you know what would happen to a woman who is walking alone on a path from one town to the next? And let's pretend she had a a bag of money with her. 
And, and let's just pretend as she's going along her path, some people see it and they recognize there's no law saying that we can't rob her. Uh, no one is going to stop us. No one's here to even witness this. It's just us out here and this poor woman walking alone, maybe with the only money she has in this bag. And so while many may have gone along and robbed her, some would not have prior to Christ coming. But why, what, what, was the, what was the defining thing that would stop them from robbing the woman? It would be that in their culture, in their way of thinking, in their worldview, to rob someone like this woman walking along, that would be uh, inferior. That would be seen as being weak. You would be weak to rob this woman because it showed that you weren't able to provide for yourself or it showed that you, you somehow, um, you, you had uh, a low standard of what, of what it took to get, to make your means. So the, the interest was all self-focused. What will this mean for me? But then Christ comes. Christ setting this amazing example. Christ teaching us and leading us. And now there's a whole different set of reasons why you would not rob this woman. Christians and others who had been informed by Christianity would say, this woman who's walking along here, why should I not rob her? What would happen to her? All of a sudden, they're thinking of the other. They're thinking, what would happen to this poor woman if I took the last bit of money? She might starve. What if she has children who are relying upon her? They wouldn't be able to eat. Uh, Christianity radically changed the way people felt about the other in caring for the other. Christianity, friends, then lived out biblically has lifted up the poor. It's protected the marginalized. It brought together groups that were once at war with each other. And is given us a reason to care for the other who may be very different from us. Christianity has brought people a peace that no other religion on the face of the earth can. It radically changes people. And friends, it doesn't just change their outward behaviors. It actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changes people from the inside to the outside. And so this morning you need to recognize, I'm not speaking for Muslims. I'm not speaking for Mormons or Buddhists. I'm speaking this morning on behalf of Jesus Christ. That when you put your finger on that Jesus, on that Holy Spirit, on that God, and you say that God is not great and his kingdom is poisoning everything, I think you're essentially committing the unforgivable sin. And so it is no surprise to us that Hitchens died in outrageous unbelief. So just back up a, a, a minute here then and see, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. I think that that is what's going on here with these scribes. And while it's possible for someone here to commit this sin, I think we have a greater pothole that you and I need to worry about. It's the general sin, but very widespread sin of unbelief. Friends, what is it that's going to keep many, many people from entering the kingdom of heaven? What will keep them out of the family? What's going to keep them out of God's particular people? It certainly won't be acts of homosexuality. It's not going to be acts of murder. It won't be theft or hating or even being mad at God. All those sins are very much forgivable. All those sins should be repented of. And all those sins should be put off for the call to love one another rightly and love and obey God. But church, the mere act of unbelief is a far greater issue. And it will keep many people from being counted like the five that we counted today to be among the family of God. Why? 
Listen to this passage from Romans, and I'm going to emphasize faith and belief. Listen. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom put God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This passage from Romans says that a particular people are counted as family. Who is it? It is those who have faith, who trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus will also address this from the other side of the coin as we close out this passage here. So we look at verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent and called to him. Crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my mother, my brother, my sister. The irony at this point is rather outstanding. Who is it, friends, who should know that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Lord? Who is it who should know at this point? Yes, this Jesus is the Christ. It should be the scribes. It should be the Pharisees. Good night. It should even be his family. Did, did, did his parents forget that they had an angelic vision showing up and saying, your son will be the Messiah? I mean, did they forget this? It's like it's completely been erased from their mind. They should have been the ones to know. And yet, ironically, in Mark, who is it so far who has their finger on Jesus's identity most? Do you know at this point? It's the demons. The demons at this point are the ones who are crying out, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, shh, shh, no, don't, we can't, this, my mission's not complete. This isn't coming out yet. And, and, and if this is true, then who so far in this narrative seems to be more open to the idea with what the demons are, are proclaiming? Again, it's not the, it's not the scribes, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the family. It's the sinners, it's the tax collectors who are more ready to accept this and be brought into the family of God. Now, spoiler alert, you need to know that Jesus' mother and his, and, and his brothers will end up being counted as among those who are first to enter the church. We see this in Acts chapter one. Uh, so this is, not quite a happily they lived ever after, but it, it's good news. They do come in, into the family. But I think the key takeaway from this text this morning is that no one is going to make it into the family of God just because you're related to Jesus. Or, or more to our point, no one here is going to make it uh, into the family of God because we're related to someone who is also a Christian. God, as we say, has no grandchildren, only children. Which means we are all standing before God on our own. Um, all of us here will be accountable to our own lives and our own faith and trust in Christ. Put it this way, no one is born into the kingdom. All the family of God must be born again into this kingdom. We enter because the new birth has happened. Further, it is important to note that Jesus never severs his family relationship with difficult family members. Um, this was challenging to me, even as I consider some of my own family members that have been tremendously difficult, that I would just be happy if we just, if, if it was severed. And we notice Jesus never fully cuts them off. He, he wrestles with them. 
And, and, and there are some cults out there that will, as a part of their very abusive program, what they will do is they will say, you need to cut all ties with your family, but not with Christ. That's not the example that he has set for us. It's never the case. Even with this in mind, we see the supremacy of the family of God over the natural family. Uh, borrowing from Jesus' parable of the strong man, ask yourself, how is it that Jesus actually created this family that you and I are part of? This parable of the strong man, he, it is that Jesus, the strong man, in order to create this family, Jesus, the strong man, must become the weak man. How is it that Jesus plundered that house and freed these people and paid for their sin? Jesus, the strong man, hung in weakness on the cross. His weakness was his strength. It's what allowed him to be victorious over Satan and the devils. Not on Satan's side, but standing in opposed to Satan. So that these people would, these 12 and these disciples would leave their families, leave their lives behind them and do the will of God here. Even as we see here in this passage, there are some who say he's crazy. Others say he's a liar. But we have a view here that we're left with someone who leaves father and mother to follow him and honor him as Lord. And no matter which route you go, you cannot be satisfied by simply saying that Jesus is some sort of spiritual guru. Some guy who got some stuff right some of the times, but not all the time. To quote Lewis Foley, he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone here from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They may say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must never say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. To be honest, I think if we read this text logically, we only come away with one conclusion. Jesus is the strong man who defeats Satan as he frees us, and now we are in his family. Sinners who've been called to him, who recognize him for who he is, not a liar, not a lunatic, but he's Lord. And even as the last verse calls us to, and because he's Lord, Our family honors him and obeys him in his will as Lord of our lives. Recall Johnny Cash's story where he has his older brother, Jack, who wanted to become a preacher, but died tragically at 14 years old. He wanted to steer Johnny in the right way. Johnny Cash really learned the importance of family. And, uh, you know, with the death of his older brother here, it really carried through, impacted his entire life. But here through scripture, we're reading, we know all the people who read through this passage and were questioning what the family unit is supposed to be like. They kept on reading this book. They got to the end of the book of Mark where they see a different brother, an older brother, our older brother who died tragically, not in an accident, but he died purposely, died purposely to bring us into that family, to bring us into that fold. It's what ensured that we would be joined with him together forever. Would you pray with me? Father, as children, we call out right now to our Heavenly Father. Uh, We want to praise our Heavenly Father for the work of your Son and sending your Son to us to, to call us like the Twelve, 
to mark out a particular people who are the family of God. And we, we rejoice that we have each other. Um, many of us have family members who are not walking with you. And we rejoice that we have each other to, to embrace, uh, to share difficult trials and moments with. And we praise you that we have the shared forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.